Chapter 68 of History of the Norwegian People, Volume 1 by Knut Gershet. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Annexation of Iceland and Greenland After the completion of the colonization of Iceland, after a system of laws and government had been established and Christianity had been acknowledged to be the state religion, the throes of organization were over, and the people enjoyed a period of peaceful development, which may be said to have lasted from about 1000 till 1150. By the adoption of the laws of Ulfljot in 930, the new state received its constitution. The Althing and the Fjordingsthings were organized, and the local Thing districts were limited to twelve. Each with three Goder, except in the northern districts, or Fjordung, where there were four Thing districts, making in all 39 Godord in Iceland. In 1004, a Supreme Court of Appeal, the Fimtardomer, was created in connection with the Althing to decide cases which could not be settled at the Fjordungsthings, and twelve new Godur were created to sit in this tribunal. The Fimtardomer should consist of nine Godur from each of the four districts, Fjordungar, and the twelve new Godur in all 48. But as the prosecution could discard six and the defense six, only 36 rendered the decision. This new tribunal proved to be very beneficial. The resorting to duels, holmgang, in settling disputes had become very common, but after the creation of the Fimtardomer, duels were abolished in Iceland, 1006. In 1022, the relations between Iceland and the mother country were definitely established by the agreement known as the institutions and laws which St. Olaf gave the Icelanders. We have already seen that by this agreement a quasi-Norwegian citizenship which indeed they had enjoyed since Harald Harfagr's reign, was granted the Icelanders, i.e. the right of Odal, the right to join the king's herd, to bring suits before the thing, to cut wood and timber, to inherit property, and to trade and traffic in Norway. In return for these privileges, they had to pay a small tax, landöre, and of those who happened to stay in Norway in time of war, two of every three had to do military service. The intellectual, no less than the economic and commercial relations, tended to strengthen the bonds between the colony and the mother country. Every year, ships from Iceland entered the harbors of Norway to carry back the wares needed at home, but still stronger were the ties knit by common religious and literary interests, a common language, and intimate intercourse in the fields of intellectual activity, which nursed strong the feeling that the people of the two countries were one nation. Christianity had been introduced in Iceland by Norwegian missionaries, sent by the Norwegian kings, and the two bishoprics in the island were joined to the archdiocese of Nidaros. In Iceland, saga literature and skaldic poetry flourished as nowhere else in the north, but most of the Icelandic skalds and sagamen stayed in Norway, where they found welcome, honor, and reward at the king's court. The Icelanders felt, as keenly as did any Norseman at home, that the king of Norway and his court were the center of Norse intellectual and national life, and the embodiment of the strength and unity of the Norse nation. Of this they have given ample proof in their songs and sagas about the kings of Norway. But the old love of freedom and local autonomy was also kept alive in the aristocratic Republic of Iceland, and their political independence was lost only after internecine strife had paralyzed law and government and created unbearable conditions which had made a strong central government a paramount necessity. Two principal defects in the political institutions of Iceland, the alienability of the Godord, and the absence of a central government, 
led gradually to the disappearance of popular government and the destruction of law and order. The 39 goder of the minor thing districts were, besides the Lovsigemand, the only officials in the Icelandic state. Their office, Godord, was hereditary. They were the wealthiest and most influential and powerful men in their community, and usually kept a band of 40 to 60 armed followers. They had charge of the local administration, and were to maintain law and order in their communities. They sat in the Lagreta, where they exercised all legislative power, and they also appointed the judges, who performed the judicial functions at the various things. The Logmand and the Goder had to attend the Althing, and the Bunder, farmers, who had a small amount of property, were also required to attend. It is clear that the Goder, who had well nigh all the powers of government, were the pillars of the state. The more pernicious was the right which they possessed of alienating their office and of placing it in the hands of grasping and ambitious chieftains. Rival families gathered into their possession one Godord after another, until a few powerful chieftains had usurped all political power, and ruled with sovereign power each in his own district. As no central government existed, their private feuds developed into a permanent state of civil war. They brought armies in the field and fought pitched battles. Houses were burned and property destroyed. The laws were a dead letter, since they could not be enforced. In 1217, a powerful family, the Ottoverja, in southern Iceland, felt themselves offended by the Norwegian merchants, and attacked and plundered some Norwegian merchant vessels. The Stirlings sided with the merchants, and killed many of the Ottoverja. The news of these disturbances was brought to Norway by the great saga writer Snorla Sturluson, who had to promise King Haakon to use his influence to bring Iceland under Norwegian overlordship. He was made Lendermand, and returned to Iceland, but he did not seem very eager to fulfill his promise, and as his countrymen resisted all attempts of that kind, nothing was accomplished. The struggle between the Icelandic chieftains continued. Snorra Sturluson's brother, Sigvat Sturluson, and his son, Sturla Sigvatsson, became very prominent in the century 1160 to 1262, which is also called the Stirling period. Sturla forced Snorra and his son Urukja to leave Iceland, but his arrogance so angered the other chieftains that they combined against the Stirlings, and defeated and killed both Sturla and his father in the Battle of Erlikstad in 1238. Snorra and his son had repaired to Norway to the court of Skula Jarl, and when they had heard that Sturla was dead, they made ready to return to Iceland. King Haakon had sent Snorra a message requesting him not to leave before he could make some arrangements with him regarding Iceland, but Snorra paid no heed and departed without seeing the king. After Skule Jarl's death, Haakon instructed the Icelandic chieftain Gieser Thorvaldsson to send Snorra to Norway or else to kill him. Gieser had been married to Snorra's daughter, but had parted from her and he and his father-in-law were bitter enemies. He marched with an armed band to Snorra's home, Reykholt, in Borgerfjord, and killed the great saga writer, who was then sixty-three years old, 1241. Snorra was a great historian, but his contemporaries describe him as self-seeking and treacherous. When King Haakon found that he could accomplish nothing in Iceland by the aid of the chieftains, he decided to strengthen his influence in the island by the assistance of the clergy. The bishops of Iceland had hitherto been chosen by the clergy and the people, but as this was contrary to the canon law, Haakon got the right of election transferred to the Archbishop of Nidaros and the cathedral chapter. 
By 1238 Norwegian ecclesiastics had been made bishops in Iceland, and they naturally sought to strengthen the hold of Norway in the island. While the bloody feuds continued unabated, Haakon summoned two of the leading chieftains, Thord Kakala and Gisr Thorvaldsson, to Norway and retained them there for some time. In 1255 he sent one of his own men, Ivar Engelsson, to Iceland, who by the aid of Bishop Henrik of Holar succeeded in getting the people of the northern districts to submit to the king. In 1258, Haakon made Gisr Thorvaldsson Jarl, and permitted him to return to Iceland after he had solemnly promised to bring the whole island into submission. Gisr did not act with much energy in the matter, and in 1261 the king sent Halvard Goldsko to Iceland. Through his efforts all the people of Iceland, save the eastern districts, were persuaded to take the oath of allegiance, and to acknowledge themselves subjects of the king of Norway. A compact was made between the king and the people of Iceland, stipulating what rights and privileges they were to enjoy. According to this compact, they were to pay taxes to the king. They should keep their own laws, and they could not be summoned before a court outside of their own country. Six ships should sail from Norway to Iceland every year. The Landora tax should be abolished, the Lovsigemund and the Sisselmain should be Icelanders, and the island should be governed by a jarl appointed by the king. In 1264, the people of the eastern districts also tendered their submission to King Haakon. In 1261, Greenland had formally placed itself under the king of Norway. The Haakon Haakonsson saga says, That fall, Odd of Sjalta, Paul Magnusson, and Knarar Leave came from Greenland. They had been gone four winters. They said that the Greenlanders had resolved to pay the king taxes as well as fines for manslaughter whether the person killed was a Norseman or a Greenlander, and whether the murder happened in the settlements or in Northersether, so that the king now received Wergeld as far north as under the polar star. End of chapter 68